remember the world can't provide uh, the same level of uh, activity and the uh, stimulation of the brain. And so them coming off of technology and being bored almost immediately and saying, I have nothing to do, but they put their phone down 30 seconds ago. And you're like, what do you mean you have nothing to do? But they don't know how to engage or find other activities uh, to be meaningful, and that becomes a problem. History will be split in two with the advent of the iPhone on June 29, 2007. As we record this now, about 12 years later, middle school students are entering our ministries and the world as the very first generation that have never known a world without the smartphone. It's definitely changed our society and our culture. We're still trying to catch up. We're still trying to figure it out. And today, we're going to talk about how all of this is affecting the brain, and we can't wait to get into it. I'm Jeff Eckert. I'm Jason Brewer. And this is The Thought Factory. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, cultivating students through biblical discipleship and spiritual disciplines using theology, community, and technology. Learn more at neverthesame.org. Glad you're with us today on The Thought Factory podcast. If you haven't, go back, listen to our last episode. It was with Julie Morgenstern, and it was a great conversation about students and time and their schedules. I learned a lot. I actually went out, Jason, I bought her book. Oh, you bought the book. I thought you were going to buy like some sort of organizing bin for your closet. No, I'm not there yet. I was starting really with in, the book. I was really anticipating that that's what you bought you based could, off of the conversation yeah, that we had. <laughs> you could see me lighten up with her. She, uh, yeah, I need that, by the way. Well, the book is a great start because it, it only leads start. to things that get you organized. Now, if I could just find the book, <laughs> that would be good. It's in the piles. But that's a great, uh, that's a great episode. Well, as we're recording this, we are coming into the summer months, and we're excited because around here, there's a buzz in our office because we're getting ready for NTS camp. That is correct. We are definitely getting ready for NTS camp. We are only a few weeks away, and then it's summertime and it's go time. And in the summer, we gone. We gone. We're on the road. We're traveling thousands of miles with thousands of students at all of our events. If you want to know more about that, go to ntscamp.com. Maybe come visit. If you're a youth pastor, youth worker, and your church doesn't do anything for students in the summer, and this is a way you can connect, we would love to see you personally, but we'd also love for you to check out what is happening we are uh, one of the fastest-growing camps in the country. It's amazing what's happening. We get excited, Jason, because we hit the road. All of us here in the office, we we all go together. We're hanging out, but we're ministering with students and youth workers and just having an amazing time. We are located in Indiana. We are in South Dakota. We are in New York. We are in South Carolina, Oklahoma. And if you can't remember any of those states, you can go on ntscamp.com. And if you do decide to visit, we'd love to to have a conversation with you. Come to think of it, if you look at those locations, you go, hey, why don't you go here? Call us. Maybe we will. Yeah. You never know. That's how we've been growing. We've done it. People have called us, and we've gone. So we would love to meet you. We'd love to connect with you there. But that's coming up for us. That's kind of big in our lives. In case you weren't aware, we are coming up on the first Thursday of May, which is the National Day of Prayer here in the United States. Now, we know we have listeners from across the world We want to speak specifically to those of you here in the U.S. and encourage you to get engaged in this prayer movement. It's a powerful day of prayer. It was set aside. It's interesting that in 1988, it's the last time in our history where we've had unanimous vote in the House and Senate to, to approve something 
And that was the approval back in 1988 to approve that the first Thursday of May would be set aside and designated as a national day of prayer here in America. So it's an important day for us nationally to to recognize our dependence and need for God as a country and as a society and as a world. And we, I want to encourage you, there are gatherings that happen all over the United States. If you want to learn more about what the National Day of Prayer is, go to nationaldayofprayer.com. You can find out more. Just want to an encouragement to you, whether you're a student getting plugged in at your school or a gathering at state houses, churches, public places all over America, they'll be happening. Hundreds of thousands of people will be gathered on the National Day of Prayer. I hope that you can get to be a part of this. Today we are talking to Dr. Michael Wolf, who is a neuropsychologist. He is from an organization called Brains, and we are really just focusing on the science of the brain and and the connection to smartphones and digital screens and just what is the impact it has on a brain, a developing brain, an adolescent brain. And so it's a fascinating conversation. Dr. Michael Wolf is co-owner of Brains, which is an organization that is about maximizing the potential of families through understanding the complex relationship between the brain, the body, and real life. He's a neuropsychologist and diplomat and a member of the American Academy of Pediatric Neuropsychology. That's a mouthful, but it is amazing to have you with us in the studio. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, glad you're here. So let's just jump right in here with what you do. Tell us about what a neuropsychologist does. So the role of neuropsychology is to try to take different pathologies, whether it's a developmental disability, concussions, seizures, learning disabilities, ADHD, trying to understand how those are influencing a person's functioning, and then figuring out what we can do to try to manage that, whether a medication might be needed, whether there's rehabilitation strategies or ways to dynamically work with that individual to make sure that they're functioning as best as they can. I think I learned something already. So. Dr. Wolf, would you be called Michael? That would be more than appropriate. Michael, not Mike. I think you should call him Dr. Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> well, he... Have you ever seen What About Bob? Yes, you seen that? Okay. Baby Steps. Yes. Remember how he makes him call him Dr. Marvin at home, Leo at the office? Yes. I think we should do that. Dr. Wolf here in the studio. <laughs> All right, Dr. Wolf. <laughs> yeah, Leo's a stretch. Yeah, um. <laughs> that's right. Well, then tell us what you do in your area of expertise a little bit more specifically. Sure. Uh, so my expertise currently, uh, even though I'll be cross-boarding and in process, is to really work on individuals 18 and younger uh, to try to understand uh, what, what is happening to them in their life that they're not being successful, whether they're getting in trouble at school, at home, uh, if they have a medical complication and they can't remember what they're learning or what they're doing from one day to the next. We're trying to understand how severe is the, the factors, the medical condition, mental health, or other uh, aspects of their life influencing what's going on in day-to-day for them, their family, and how they're functioning, and then trying to give them strategies to know what they can do or what the family can do, teachers and others, to help them. Really, one of the main reasons we wanted to have you with us is to talk about the impact of technology and particularly screens on the adolescent brain. So let's talk about that and tell us what you've learned as you've studied the impact of screens on the adolescent brain. So starting, you know, roughly about a decade ago or so when the technology was getting into kids' hands, tablets, smartphones, and stuff for the first time, we started to notice a lot more families telling us, you know, my kid just can't pay attention. I talk to them at home and and they're distracted or maybe they just don't even respond. And through the years, that's intensified as uh, online gaming has become more intense and 
we have other uh, cultural factors, uh, unfortunately, where kids just don't know the difference between appropriate and non-appropriate sites. And we're seeing them pushing the envelope, both of behavior, uh, becoming addicted to uh, these technologies where they really don't care about much else uh, going on potentially in their life, like their homework or uh, what they should be doing for their chores and meeting expectations for others. And so that continues to become more and more problematic for a lot of our children. I mean, this is kind of anecdotal, but do you see students, is it attributing to like a lethargic attitude towards life? Are you seeing that? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I would think it's a lethargic uh, attitude towards life necessarily. I I would say maybe a false attitude towards life uh, that I'm living through technology and you know, that seems to be more real to me than it does to interact or engage or uh, function in the world that's actually going on around me. And so instead, I want to kind of be integrated with this device more than with other people. We were talking off the air in regards to should students even be allowed to be on laptops or have computers in front of them at school? How does having screens in front of students at schools affect their education and development with their brain? Yeah, so we have multiple things going on in this one. Um, And there's some good new research out that's suggesting that putting technology in our students' hands at school is probably not the most effective way to be teaching our children. Uh, We have several influences. One, most kids know workarounds. And so when they're in school and they're supposed to be using their uh, tablets or computers to actually do school work or reading and other things, they've already been on the Internet or they found a backdoor to access different information. So they're no longer attending to the teacher. And so that's the problem number one. Secondly, when we talk about the idea of cortical density, um, that's the idea that the brain should be densely packed and and they should have a lot of neuronal connections because that helps us to function so much better in the world, to multitask and to manage a lot of information flow. And some new research is suggesting that uh, children who have a lot of screen time, technology time, even if it's used for some type of educational influence, might be less densely packed, cortically speaking, um, by a ratio of about 10 to 15 percent in comparison to their normal age cohort. And then we're, of course, seeing things like uh, poor attentional regulation because the world isn't as stimulating as technology can be. And so we are seeing that either daydreaming or seeking more information or hyperactivity. Before we jumped on, Jason, you brought that up, just the, the uh, end arounds with, with Google Docs, how students are using that now to... Yeah. What we found is that they're using it to sex each other or even communicate with each other live in school because the teachers are allowing uh, Google Docs to be something that they interact with throughout the the class period. And yet they can have live interaction, but they can also hide their interaction through the comment thread. And so when a teacher starts walking around and and interacting with students, they can easily just go back to the default mode and and erase all that, that communication. They're doing something that they shouldn't be doing, and especially an inappropriate behavior. You're seeing a, a psychological and even maybe physiological effects of using that in, in schools. Are you finding, I don't know if you'd have any experience, but are you finding that, are schools even wanting to hear that? Are they wanting to look at the information, research, and data? Or are they just down the road, there's no turning back on the technology in classrooms? That's a good question. Uh, You know, I don't know where Michigan Educational Association is in regards to this matter. Uh, I think they're in a a tough position, though, because they got to be looking at we need to teach our children to use the technologies that are eventually going to be there in college and in the workplace environment, which is so technology-driven in today's world, but at the same time recognizing that these kids might not be getting the foundation that they could have using their books or paper and other just interactive uh, collaboration without the use of technology. 
And Google Docs is a good one. And my daughter does that. And, uh, you know, she'll be working with a friend, you know, at a different location than she is, but they can co-create this paper together. But then when I ask her, do you ever talk to this friend or do you ever review the paper uh, together interpersonally? And she uh, said, you know, we try, we're supposed to in class, but we don't know how to tell each other that feedback. But they can do it through the Google Doc and they can give comment, but to actually do it interpersonally uh, is very challenging for them. And so not use that interactive interpersonal quality. So you have found that that students are losing that ability to interact in person-to-person, face-to-face because they're so used to interacting over a digital screen or or technology. That's what you're finding, you're saying? Yeah, I think we've seen that, you know, if you've been a humbled parent like me, you know, you're at the uh, family event for Christmas and things like that, and you got your nieces and uh, cousins there, and you know, you try to have a conversation and you can't, but if you go sit next to them on the couch and you pull out your phone and you start texting, all of a sudden you're going to have a half an hour conversation with them by a text. But when you turn to look at them and say, you know, I'm right here, we can talk, and then all of a sudden they're speechless with you. And it's kind of humbling and, and certainly not a, a pleasant experience to think, I can't even talk to my uh, family anymore. Sometimes even with my daughter at home, trying to get her attention, it won't work. And so all of a sudden I'll go ahead and text, and next thing you know, I get a really quick response. And so... Yeah, it's such a strange time in which we live where things like that are a reality, where it's harder to have a face-to-face conversation than it is, you know, through a screen, even when you're sitting right next to each other. And, and, and this phenomenon, like you're saying, we're about 10 years into the smartphone era, which is pretty amazing when you think about all the sweeping changes that have happened through that one singular device and it coming on to culture. I mean, we hear it all the time, but addictive behavior in smartphones. You know, Apple just came out. I don't know how long it's been since they've been doing the screen time, kind of where they give you the, the default automated weekly summary of, of how much you're using your phones. And I think I get mine on Sunday mornings. I don't know. 9 a.m. Is that when it is? 9 a.m.? Or 9.30. Oh, something like that? You know, it's like... 9. 9 We've o'clock. Confirmed. It's 9 a.m. Local time. So yeah, and that's that's almost like a dreaded moment because you get it and you're like, I don't. Sometimes I just like I'm not even open. I don't even want to look at it. I don't want to see. I don't want to know. Ignorance is bliss. But um, but what about addictive behavior in smartphones? What what have you learned? What are you learning about that? So we do have some good fMRI studies. They're they're functional studies that look at the brain as it's engaged with some type of technology use. And unfortunately, uh, when they're looking at these fMRIs. We're seeing that the brain's response to technology uh, with gaming and some social media lights up the brain very similar to what we'd see for cocaine. And so the nucleus accumbens and looking for dopaminergic release and a little bit of suppression of the frontal lobe, which is meant to kind of say, you know, we've probably spent too much time on this or we should probably be doing something else because I have other responsibilities. It's the same type of response that we would see if they were under the influence of a, a fairly potent uh, central uh, nervous system stimulant like cocaine. So what do you, I mean, how do you respond to that? What, what, what are your suggestions on, on what we do as a reaction to what you just said? That's pretty astounding to, to hear the similarities between those two. Yeah. You know, managing it early is probably one of the best things that you can possibly do. Um, you know, before I came down here today, uh, we just had a kid literally suspended from school for attacking his teacher when the teacher said, you can't use your tablet now in class because you are using it inappropriately. And next thing you know, this kid lunges at the teacher and it makes a very threatening gesture. 
Um, but we've seen kids, you know, be psychiatrically hospitalized. There's now at least 10 hospitals in the nation that have inpatient psychiatric uh, stabilization for technology-addicted individuals, similar to rehab facilities. So attack it early. You know, manage it. Make sure that they know that this is a tool that can be used for functional purposes, but it doesn't necessarily become your life and limit the time. Take that responsibility to teach them that life still happens around you and you need to engage in that life and teach them how to interpersonally play the board games and uh, use their brain in creative and flexible ways so that they're, they're learning and they're dynamically interacting rather than uh, influence coming to them that's graded by uh, these video games or uh, social media uh, sites to moderate their normalcy. We want to take uh, control of that for them. And, of course, limiting time is a huge one. American Academy of Pediatrics, no more than two hours a night, we usually kind of say for most pediatrics, that's more than ample, and you should probably lessen that when it comes to actual media devices. Beyond just the <clears throat> the threat of violence when somebody is taking away a device from somebody and that kind of reveals the addictive behavior, what other behaviors do you see happen or occur when somebody is addicted to a smartphone, a tablet, or just even gaming you mentioned? Well, kind of like when we had the discussion here, that inability to stop going and looking at it. You know, now you're doing something, you're doing a chore, or you're engaged with the individuals in a conversation. But, you know, midstream of the conversation, you can't help but, you know, pull that technology or pull that phone to double check it. Um, paying attention to what other types of activities are they doing in their day. If really their day revolves around their technology, we've got a really big problem. They should be able to have many other activities that they're doing. Uh, on any given day without the need for recurrent prompting. Now, granted, that depends on the age of the child and how much prompting is there, but you know, by the time we get to our teenage years, it shouldn't be saying, hey, put your phone down because you're in the middle of doing that and walking away from the expectations that they have. Stimulus seeking is usually very common for gamers. Um, remember, the world can't provide uh, the same level of uh, activity and the, uh, stimulation of the brain. And so them coming off of technology and being bored almost immediately and saying, I have nothing to do, but they put their phone down 30 seconds ago. And you're like, what do you mean you have nothing to do? But they don't know how to engage or find other activities uh, to be meaningful, and that becomes a problem. Because most of us put that phone down, you should easily think, well, fine, I'll just go do this. Um, and your brain can immediately shift you to something else. But those who tend to be addicted, it's like their brain can't function and they don't know what else to do without that use of technology or access to technology might be the way to say it. When it comes to, to new things in society, sometimes you've got, you know, the the doomsday people, and then you've got people that just, like, ignore it. And I'm just wondering with, I mean, you're so immersed in this, and those of us listening, a lot of us, we're either parents, youth workers, pastors, whatever, we're engaged with students on some, some level, but how concerned are you, and how concerned should we be with some of these issues when we're talking about phone addiction? I, you know, I think we should have a moderate level of uh, concern. I don't think we have to go to catastrophe and we're all going to become cyborgs that only interact uh, through uh, media and don't know how to do anything else. Um, but I think that moderate level of concern needs to come into play. I would say a lot of our kids, are, their first goal when they're uh, a kid used to be, I want to be a policeman and a fireman. Now when I'm working with a lot of elementary kids, I want to be a video game designer, and that becomes their career goal. And that's kind of the same as being an elite athlete. There, there are uh, designers out there, but there's not many, and we don't need many. And so we can start to see that shift in terms of their uh, orientation. Uh, a future outlook, reality of future outlook becomes a really big problem. But I also think we can't jump to that minimization side either, thinking, ah, they'll grow out of it, it'll be fine, uh, because it's one of the 
highest dropout rate risks. And we've seen that ever since uh, PlayStation, Xbox, and those came out way back in the day, that college kids would sit in their dorm rooms uh, and play those games in their dorm rooms. Now they can take that with them. So I'm on my way to class, but, oh, I'm right in the middle of this uh, event or this thing going on. I can't quite get there yet. And so uh, now I'm stuck. Or when I've taught classes, uh, I had a kid that, you know, it's almost getting 0% in my physiology class that I was teaching finally approach him one day and I'm like man you are taking notes diligently uh, you know I can see that you're here and you're devoted to the class you show up every time for class what's going on how can I help you he's like no I'm just sitting back here playing Texas Hold'em trying to win myself into a world tournament or poker championship I haven't heard a thing you've said all class uh, and this was a senior level college student that uh, volitionally because he wanted to kind of get into that uh, life of uh, poker Failed that class, and his parents had no clue, and I got an email from them after a semester. What happened? You know, you must have been a hard professor. Well, maybe you should ask him uh, to be a little bit more honest with you, and if he's not, then I'll give you the answer for why that individual uh, failed. But that was a senior-level college student. Without sounding anti-technology, because that's really not what we're trying to do, mm -hmm. we're trying to provide an avenue of, of assistance in this realm of technology and, and the digital space and knowing what happens in an adolescent's brain when when we start putting them and introducing technology into their hands. But for those students or those adults that are working with students that are clearly addicted, mm -hmm. how can we help them uh, step away from that technology and step away from the behaviors that are just isolating or completely focused on that instead of mm -hmm. the things that they need to be focused on? Absolutely. And you said two key things there. Technology is wonderful. I mean, technology can make us more efficient. It can help us to follow through. Uh, you know, it helps us get things done. And, and we need to remember that. And when we're using technology volitionally and it's under our control as a tool, that can sometimes entertain me. But definitely, you know, we're recording today and we're going to use some technology splicing and making sure that this podcast comes together. That's fantastic. And, and we don't want to take that away by any means at all. But when we start to see people pushing that envelope of it, it's similar to what you would do for any other addiction we got to scale it back. we got to take control of it. In some cases, you got to go cold turkey um, because it's just impossible for that individual, if they have access to it, not to get themselves uh, distracted by the other ways to uh, be entertained, potentially, by that technology. Um, you know, we have to start looking at their mental health. Uh, a lot of kids live in that, well, not just kids, adults do, that false reality of what their uh, social media or what their point score tells them they are. Uh, and, and now you're grading the value of your person by scores. Uh, we need to let them know that they have value in other ways and we appreciate them in other ways, uh, you know, especially if we bring this into the idea of being Christians and inviting them into that community of dialogue and uh, prayer and worship to say, you know, you are more than who you are and you're supposed to be a part of your community and helping and supporting. And when you're on this technology, you're not doing that. Uh, you're not even a part of the family per se because you're just in your room or in this space of technology. And so scaling that back and letting them know that you're part of something bigger than that tool that's in your hand or that you're staring at all the time. And I'm curious with what you've experienced in your practice and what you've learned in studying and even being a parent. One of the emerging questions right now that people have been asked for a while is like, what's a good age to have smartphone technology for students? And, and our good friend, he's been on the podcast, Chris McKenna, would say that's a bad question. So I just want to set that to the side for a minute, but in terms of when you think students should be gaining access to, to having a smartphone, 
Or you can answer that question if you want. If you want to put a number on it, I'd love to hear that. But also, what kind of things do we as parents, what what guidelines or things do we need to have in place? If you don't want to put an age on it, what are some parameters that you think would be good for them before they can have a smartphone? I don't know if I'll put an age on it directly for you. It is a good question, though. But I will address it with somewhat of an age. So what age do you put a beer in a kid's hand for the first time? Or what age do you put marijuana in their hand at the first time? That is changing, too. Some people say 21. Some people say 18. You know, if you're old enough to serve in the military, maybe you should be old enough to make a decision on what types of tobacco, marijuana, or uh, alcoholic substance you might want to use. Uh, my general rule of thumb is you don't release a child into the technology world before they can fully mitigate and understand the consequences of what comes along with that, which usually means at least our teen years. Uh, my daughter, as a good example, got her first phone at 13, but that was only to bring to school because we needed to know she was on some athletic leagues and different clubs that she was going into, and so she needed to be able to call us if they're running early or running late so that we knew that we could come and get her since the office got locked. But when she got home, that technology device is put on the counter and, and it's not a functional tool. Now that she's 15, okay, you have access to that phone, and that's fine. But if I notice that you're not doing your homework because you're constantly checking your text or if you, you know, can't help but uh, ignore me when I'm trying to talk to you because you're stuck on that, you're grounded from that at least the rest of the night because that's having too much power in that technology to not manage your life around you. So my, my ultimate guess is 15, 16 would probably be the preferred ages when we're starting to look at these things. They're driving, they're out, they're involved in activities. It's nice and very convenient to allow them access to technology. That said, the addiction risk goes up the earlier they get access to these devices um, freely. Especially when you mention that this indicates some, I don't know how you uh, said it with such terminology that was eloquent, but... Uh, <laughs> indicated like the same results as, as cocaine. And so when you're introducing something for a child or an adolescent that has the power of a, a very hardcore drug, you know, is there something, when you mentioned 15 or 16, is there an age that's like your brain just cannot handle that as well as it is when it's fully developed or further along? Is So are you saying 15, 16 is when that threshold is or is it even later in life it's quite a bit later in life uh, in all actuality the earlier it gets in kids hands without um, monitoring and, and teaching them how this is just a tool for sometimes engagement and whatnot the more likely it is they'll not only be addicted but we'll see aggressive behaviors uh, in them developing their life around the technology rather than you know using technology as a tool the maturational aspect when we really look at you know where's preferential for probably anyone to be engaging in, you know, risk-taking behaviors, somewhere between, you know, 24 and 30 as when these centers of the brain are truly in their more mature state. Um, that said, we're pushing kids to learn more, to get to college more, taking AP classes faster, uh, and to be ahead of that curve more and more, which unfortunately means we also have to help set them up for the world that's going to be confronting them. So you heard it here first that you should not give a person a smartphone until they're at least 25. Yeah, we got some people on staff that are going to be really sad about that. You mentioned earlier off air about, you know, making some one or two bad choices. And I think sometimes we forget about that. But 
let's I want to bring that up again because you mentioned, you know, working with some people that that you have in circumstances you've been connected with where students have made a bad choice technologically and then they've been impacted the rest of their life. What would you say about that as we work with students? It's a really, really challenging circumstance because our kids don't really understand the, the nature that sexting, which we brought up earlier, uh, you know, if that gets caught and, and brought to a prosecutor, that's going to be charged as a criminally sexually misconduct event, usually lower grades. So there's four grades that we look at. And even if it's grade three or grade four, which are minor events, no direct contact, that's going to be with them the rest of their life on an offender registry uh, at this point with them. We also are going to lose friendships. We're going to have to be placed in different schools. We're going to potentially be on probation. And all these kids don't realize the consequence that that can have and change the course of their life because now maybe they can't go to their public school anymore. They have to go to an alternative school as a result of safety risks or they're going to miss a month or two between, you know, by the time you get through probation, you get through your first hearing, they decide if you're a high-risk individual or not. It, it, it's consequential, and it's embarrassing, and now you got to tell your friends, hey, you know, you were gone from school for a couple weeks or a month. What happened? Who wants to talk about that? And it, it acknowledges. Now we either got to bury it with lies and carry those through, uh, or we got to be honest and take the consequences of it. And, and none of us really want to do that, whether we're parents or kids. But there are other consequences, too, uh, that can come away. You know, I went to the psych hospital uh, for a week because I uh, took a knife and tried to get my cell phone back from my parent who took it from me. Uh, and now I might be facing assault charges, too. Uh, that's out of the parent's hands once those things are known. The prosecutor makes those decisions. Even if the parent says, I don't want to press charges, it doesn't matter if there's an illegal act that's been committed. That's going to come along with these individuals. Some of those don't disappear at 18. Yeah, and that is scary to think that that could affect their career for the rest of their lives. That could put them on a neighborhood list that people can look up, which can be devastating. Like just like you're saying, and I, I again, I'm I'm going to quote Chris McKenna, our friend, that says there's no such thing as passive parenting in the digital age, and I think that's so true that those of us here that are parents, especially about youth workers that are connected with parents and students, we need to be constantly vigilant and reminding them it's just your one mistake away from from ruining your life and and I think we all know that as adults in in you know Christian leadership if we make one false move bad move it could ruin our lives our careers but it's definitely parallel in, in the age of technology that no matter who you are you make a mistake and it can walk with you the rest of your life, and that could haunt you, and that's really sad. And I, I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up because, um, yeah, like Jason said, we don't want to, we don't want to be so far removed that we're saying technology is a bad thing. It's obviously an amazing asset to us to be productive and to connect us, and yet it's brought along with it some some interesting consequences with it. Um, as you look to the future, what, where do you predict things are go with technology, particularly with students and psychology? What are your thoughts? Where the technology is currently at, I think it'll continue to evolve. I think we'll get kids uh, doing math earlier. I think we'll get them engaging in a dynamic, uh, collaborative international world uh, earlier, probably starting in a middle school uh, age realm where we're looking at what types of careers do you want and where to push those into, but then uh, collaborating on an international basis. Where we're already seeing the world of psychology uh, taking a, a leadership role is also telling families, 
but hold that boat just a little bit. You can use that technology, but let's go back to board games. Let's go back to family night. Let's go back to a dialogue. Let's go back to, you know, we all have to put that technology down and learn about the interpersonal roles. Uh, you know, more and more, and obviously uh, me being a Christian, I am seeing a lot more of my um, families go, and we're going to spend some more time with the Bible or at church. And youth groups are hopefully going to reap the rewards of this by being able to give these children other opportunities outside of sport, which seems to be the biggest opportunity for children, to kind of say, you know, I can engage people without technology, and I'm going to learn the interpersonal skills to be successful in this world. Because outside of church and sports, we are seeing people sequestering to their homes more, and we are seeing a lot more isolation in families. But we want to bring that out, and the literature and psychology is really pushing that envelope to make sure that we get out there and still focus on the community. I know on a personal level, I have four young kids, and so I have this tension of how much do I give, how much balance do I allow, and when they want to be on the iPad or you know, engage in a screen, and you go, I, I know the effects, you're young. I don't want you to get addicted to all these things. And so from a parent perspective, is there any insight in the assistance of as you start to raise kids into uh, introducing them into the screen realm? Like what would you say some insight would be to keep in mind? First rule, can you have a conversation with your kid? Uh, if you can't and they don't know how to do a back and forth for at least five minutes at an early age, you know, 10 to 15 minutes by, you know, middle school and, and probably 15 minutes to a half an hour at least by high school, if they don't have that skill but they can play on their technology for hours, we've, we've got to change that dynamic. We've got to be able to talk to them about school, about life, and even talk to them about technology. You know, what are you using this for? What are the advantages for you? So I think we got to make sure that we can converse before we supplement uh, entertainment. Um, especially in the busy lives of families these days. I mean, we, we all have a million things we can do, and it's unfortunately just as easy to ignore our kids as is our pets sometimes. And maybe the pets even get more attention than the kids do. So that's, that's uh, an important key. Second one is, do you know how to play together? What would happen as a family if you sat down and said, let's turn off the TV, let's turn off all technology, what are you going to do? You know, are you going to go for a walk? Are you going to play a board game? Are you going to talk? Or is everyone just going to sit there staring at each other awkwardly? If you're a family that can't do that and not know what else is going on, you probably got a family technology issue that you need to rebalance and reprioritize. Uh, and the last one is just a matter of demonstrating and leading um, who you are as a parent. I think a lot of our parents diffuse and use technology as a way that they'll get it, and, and they can search that or they can look that up. And I'm kind of going, no, you are the leader. You are the educator. You need to be able to teach them strategies in alternative ways, especially if you have a power outage. I think it goes back to what you said, Jeff, in regards to you can't be passive when you parent, and you have to be engaged. And I think we can have the phone or the iPad or the TV screen or the game, the video game, as a device that is a default to be passive, to disengage, to just disregard engaging your kids in a conversation, in a game, a, a board game, going for a walk, playing Legos, um, anything that, that is engaging face-to-face. -face. And so it goes back to not being passive in your parenting, I believe. Yeah, that and teaching social skills. So for over 50 years, we know one of the best predictors of uh, success in the workforce and in terms of just life in general is those individuals that tend to be more outgoing, uh, take leadership skills, and put themselves out there socially in an effective way do tend to be our, our leaders and our, 
uh, people that we want as CEOs and, and respected people that are very well touted. Starting those uh, skill sets early will set them up for success. Thanks so much for your, your time and what you've done and what you continue to do and what you're learning. And I think it'd be great to to reconnect down the road and hear, hear some of the other things you're learning because I think this is such a new area of society for us. We're in a new era like we talked about and we're trying to, I think we're in the middle of it and this feels almost like a firestorm sometimes and going, how do I even survive in this digital world in which we live? And so we appreciate what you're doing to help us learn. No problem. Thanks, Mike, for being here. Doctor. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. The Thought Factory podcast is brought to you by Never the Same, whose vision is to see new generations transformed in Christ to further the kingdom of God. Learn more at neverthesame.org. Hey, my name's Debbie Bersina. I'm the president of Dare to Share Ministries, and I'm hanging out here with a bunch of friends from Claim Your Campus. They're pulling off this big prayer event in 2020, July 4th weekend. We believe in prayer. We believe it needs to fuel everything that we do. It needs to come first. That is why we are so excited about what Claim Your Campus is about. All right, we're in the bonus segment, and each week we've been talking in each episode about what we are doing on July 4th weekend, 2020. So right now, while you're thinking, I'm going to go to claimyourcampus2020.com. Go to that website. That website is 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 growing, and uh, we're adding information all the time, but it's talking about an event that we're doing along with about 60 other organizations that will be a part of what's happening. And here's what I want to remind you of is that this event is something you want to know about and you do not want to miss and we are inviting adults to become advocates for schools to help get students to this event because this is event is all about schools. It's all about equipping students to, to show and to share Jesus on their campus. And so to do that, we need adult advocates that can reserve a, a space for a school that they care about where students attend so that students can sign up and get to this amazing event on July 4th weekend, 2020. And along the way, we are coaching adult advocates, what we call adult advocates, these adults that care about students and they care about a school enough to get that school engaged in what God is doing across America at schools. And if you want to know more about being an adult advocate, join our group on Facebook. If you go on Facebook and search Claim Your Campus Advocates, jump into that group. And starting here very soon, actually starting on the National Day of Prayer here in 2019, we're going to do a weekly live coaching every Tuesday night, 9 o'clock. Myself, two really good friends that help represent what we're doing for this event will be joining me. That's every Tuesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, on the Claim Your Campus Advocates group on Facebook. I want to see you there. Go join that group. Learn more at ClaimYourCampus2020.com.